On this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, we're going to listen to part two of some conversations Marty Hahn and Elisa Morgan had with author and pastor Robert Gelinas about the subject of the mercy prayer. It was eye-opening in part one to begin to discover how often a form of Lord have mercy is found in the Bible. It truly is the Bible's most prayed prayer. So continue to explore with the Discover the Word group. What can happen when we make the Bible's most prayed prayer our most prayed prayer? The Mercy Prayer. Pick up that conversation with us next on this edition of the Discover the Word podcast. And it is great to have you with us at the table for the start of the second half of our two-part series on the Mercy Prayer with Robert Gelinas here on Discover the Word. Discover the Word is the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry as your regular study partners. And then from time to time, we also have guests join the group to lead us through a study of a passage or a subject that's been significant to them in their walk with the Lord. And so for this study, we're digging back into our archives of Bible studies and some conversations that Mart and Elisa had about uh, 10 years ago now with Robert Gelinas. Robert is pastor of Colorado Community Church in the Aurora, Denver, Colorado area. And about 10 years ago, he joined us here at the table to go through a study of the most prayed prayer in the Bible that was so memorable for us that we thought it was time for us to review how the mercy prayer can become our most prayed prayer. Now, Mart and Elisa will welcome Robert back for part two of this study in just a moment and then get into a conversation which will define some terms that are important to this discussion. Of course, mercy, but then also grace and justice. How do these three things work together and in what ways are they different? And remember that this is from 10 years ago, so you know it's plus 10 on all of their time references because before they get to those definitions, Elisa and Mart are asking Robert about an amazing project that he started called Project 127 and how it really comes out of James 127 and this understanding that we're coming to on the subject of mercy. Robert, tell us just a bit about your life, um, your family, especially we know you as the pastor of Colorado Community Church in Aurora, Colorado, and also as the founder and the envisioning person of uh, Project 127. We'd love to know a little bit more about the rest of you. Yeah, Project 127 is an initiative to empty the foster care system in Colorado. Uh, There are so many children who need homes, and there are plenty of churches that have James chapter 1, verse 27, that talk about the kind of religion that God our Father accepts. But all that came out of a personal journey of my wife and I. My wife, Barbara, and I have been married almost 20 years, and our first child we had biologically, but then the next five children, we have six children total, came into our family through adoption. You know, there are lots of things in this world that break your heart, whether it's orphans or you can just go down the list. And how it intertwines with mercy is it's one thing to feel compassion, but to have endless compassion only comes from a God who has endless compassion and mercy. And he's the one who pours the love into our heart that then allows us to then go and offer it to others. And, you know, with six children, even just a road trip is a practice of praying for mercy every <laughs> every single hour. We just went to the Grand Canyon and Every time they say, are we there yet? I say, Lord, have mercy, because we're, we're far from there. So. so this mercy prayer is a prayer that you've prayed, practiced, and seen God answer. <laughs> That's right. Many times. I have a in question, too. You talked about your vision and dream of emptying the foster care system in Colorado. What is foster care? 
just so we all understand. It is where children go when the one thing they should have been able to count on falls through in their life, their family. They should be able to count on being able to grow up in a family. But what happens when that breaks down? What happens when that dissipates? And the foster care system in the U.S. is supposed to be a temporary place until they can be reunited with their family, but oftentimes turns into a place where they languish because they can't return to their family of origin, but then there aren't enough families to take them in. Well, actually there are. Every Christian is called to care for orphans. There are plenty of families to take them in. And what's happening right now in the United States is it appears as if the bride of Christ is waking up to the orphans that are in our midst. Okay, so foster care children are either living within an agency or within temporary homes? They're living in temporary homes, waiting for their forever family. And that's your dream. That's your hope and prayer. Yeah. There are half a million children in the foster care system. There are many more Christians than that. And it's easy to envision a day where there are more families waiting for children than children waiting for families. How does this intermingle with this passion you have for mercy? You know, God desires for us to be merciful and God gives us what we need to do that. We can't carry it out on our own. Being a people of compassion can be wearying over time unless we go to the source that provides that compassion to us. Well, help us understand, uh, if you can, because I get confused, maybe it's just me, but between mercy and grace and justice. Yeah, and that's a good point because I find in the book, Robert, you have a great sense of deep concern, not only for mercy, but for justice as well. So you're right, Elisa, mm-hmm. how do we sort all of this out? And, and then we all love grace. And so how do those work together? And, and I struggle with it and get confused by it as well. But it appears to me that mercy is a complement to God's justice and that mercy makes way for God's grace and that they're not competing with one another but they are working in tandem. Okay, so we need to say this again. Yes. Mercy is a complement, so it sits next to... Right, because Scripture clearly proclaims God is just. Okay. God is a God of justice, but He's also merciful. Either they're competing or they're complementing each okay. other. How would you define justice? Justice is that which the way things are supposed to be, and the desire of God to make things right, and the innate desire that we have for things to be made right as well. It's what Martin Luther King Jr. talked about when he read from the prophets and said, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. It's not just me being right, it's society being right. Setting things straight, right. getting them right, right. correct. So, so in a mm-hmm. sense then, we should long for that, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we long for it in society, but then when it becomes personal, do we long for justice in our own life? Do we want things to be made right about us. And that's usually where we aren't so sure. We'd rather have mercy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet God still wants justice on all levels. And so it seems to be working together. And, you know, Psalm 103, you can see the psalmist writing about this because he writes about God's mercy, but then what about his justice? And Psalm 103, maybe looking at verses 8 through 10. Yes. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And there you have it again, those four different descriptions of God's mercy. He's compassionate. That's womb-like love, the kind of love that a mother has for a child. He is gracious. That's love that stoops down low. He's not quick to anger. You know, God's not a lightning bolt God. He's not out there waiting to get us every time we do something wrong. And and so God is merciful. And yet there's that verse in there where he says he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Hmm. That's a surprising verse, isn't it? And yes, and his anger, it says he's not angry forever. Yeah. That's and this good, is the that's Old Testament. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so there should be a tension, we feel, between his justice and his mercy. But then you wrap into that grace. What's grace? You know, and grace is 
receiving what we don't deserve. We've heard that many times. It's, it's receiving what you don't deserve. But what strikes me is that before we receive grace, we have to first receive mercy. That before God gives us what we don't deserve, he has to first choose not to give us what we do deserve. Mm. And that's mercy. And you said mercy paves the way for grace. Right. First, God chooses not to give us what we deserve, which is kind of that justice piece. But then now it makes the way for grace, receiving what we don't deserve. So they work together. This is helpful. It is helpful. It helps us to see the relationships between these. But it also raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? What what comes to mind? How do we end up with something short of absolute chaos? (laughs) It's easy to defend his justice as long as we don't necessarily want to get that involved with it. Which is your point, right? Right. And doesn't God care about right and wrong? And is he just letting people off the hook? And that's good news for me, but is he going to let everybody off the hook? And yeah, these three, justice, mercy, and grace, raise lots of questions. Is justice ever going to, quote, win because grace and mercy kind of come in and trump? Yeah, there, there is a verse that talks about mercy trumps, if I remember. It triumphs. Triumphs over. Over judgment. So if Martin Luther King has this great dream and... I think any one of us who has read it say his sense of justice rolling down, it's inspiring. But how does that work then? I mean, if we got justice, wouldn't mercy have to cease? How can they live together? Yeah, and I, I see even people coming to Jesus trying to catch him on this. You think of the woman caught in adultery, <laughs> and they brought her to Jesus, and they thought they trapped him. Right. Because mm-hmm. the law was that she should be stoned for what she did, and also the person who they also caught her with, but he Can was we not just brought. Quickly tell that story. Yeah, just, just go ahead. I mean, this is, is the story of here's a woman caught in adultery, and the religious leaders parade her before Jesus, as you're saying, Robert, sure that he's going to give her justice, no grace, no mercy, and the penalty for adultery would be stoned. And instead, he doesn't. He, he stoops down, and this is that passage where he writes in the dust, and we all wonder what he's doing there. And some commentators have suggested that he was writing down, actually, the names of everybody in the crowd who had also sinned. You know, we don't know exactly what was happening, but he doesn't give her the stoning. In fact, he moves back from that position of stoning and really says, you who have never sinned, you cast the first stone. Another take on that is, They've brought this woman caught in adultery. They throw her at Jesus' feet. They know he's been soft on sin. They know what the law requires. So there's almost a sense in which they're trying to trap him in mercy, aren't they? Against the purposes of, and words of Moses. They know his reputation. Yeah. And so they knew what his inclination would be in that moment. They're bringing him a case where the law says one thing, but they know what he most likely will do. And they said, so they brought her trying to trap him. Yeah. To pit him against Moses. Because he has a reputation for what? For being compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, not treating us as our sins deserve. Even that moment when he's writing in the sand, the beauty of it is no one's looking at her. Mm -hmm. When he kneels down and starts to write in the sand, everyone's leaning forward to see what he's writing. And her shame is lessened in the moment. They don't see her. They're now looking at him. And they thought that that would trap him. And, And so for me, the only thing that brings it together is the cross that God is a God of justice. And so we see on the cross, his justice being met in Jesus dying on the cross. But then we also see him then offering mercy to everybody. And he satisfies both. Yeah. Somehow, you're right. Somehow he has to be true to Moses because he can't come contradicting Moses. But he does this in this mysterious, miraculous, substitutionary way that you described. That's why I love an orthodox cross. I mean, most of the crosses that we wear around our neck and see in our churches have two beams. You have the vertical beam and the horizontal beam. And so we're used to that. 
the Orthodox Church adds two more lines to the cross. They have a line up above that would represent the sign above Jesus' head, but then they add another diagonal line down low. And you look at that, it's called a three-bar cross. You know, what is that diagonal line down low? They say it represents the mercy of God. So it's almost as if a vertical beam is justice and a horizontal, for example, is grace. And then this diagonal one is mercy and the three elements live together in the cross. And they say it represents mercy because on the cross, there were two thieves. Uh. And one of them said, remember me. Mm-hmm. And his mercy was available and God gave mercy to him. Yeah, in Jesus, we find all the grace and justice and mercy that we need. Well, great to have you at the table with us. This is Discover the Word. You're here with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, and our special guest for this series on the Mercy Prayer, pastor and author Robert Gelinas. And that discussion really did reinforce the power of the cross, didn't it? For those who want to see God's justice, we can point them to the cross. For those who need God's grace, we can point them to the cross. And for those who long for God's mercy, once again, it's found in the cross of Jesus. Well, next they're going to talk about an interesting twist on this idea of mercy, when pain and suffering are what Robert will call God's mercy in disguise. Because when you think about it, can there be mercy if there isn't some kind of need for it? So Robert calls it the issue of mercy in disguise. When I think of mercy, I mean, I have this physical reaction, kind of like, you know, just a sigh of relief, a breath, um, especially when I receive it, but also when I ask for it. I just, that's what I'm longing for. And yet I'm kind of feeling as well that there is a painful element to mercy, that it's not always, there are other emotions involved in it. You know what I've run into? I've been among men who, when the issue of mercy was on the table, would look at it as being soft, almost down their nose. You know, you're just being soft. Come on. Almost like it's a character defect. And I think among our circles, there's a lot of pressure to make sure that we don't look soft when it comes to the principles of our, of our following Christ. And that's why I like that you have Jesus, who's a man. He was far from being soft, and yet he was incredibly merciful. And to see him offering that in very practical ways, and I even think of the story of the 10 lepers, where Jesus it says he's walking on the border between Samaria and Galilee. And I love that he's on the border. I mean, he's walking the line between two groups of people who don't like each other. So he's going to go right there in the middle of them. And he's just going to stand there. And he encounters that very unique group of people. You have 10 lepers, mixed group of people, uh, Jews and one Samaritan. And uh, you, you guys know the story. Well, well let's, let's read it. Luke chapter 17. Now it happened as Jesus went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a certain village... There met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. 
And so here we have another instance of the mercy prayer, this time 10 lepers who cry out from afar, Lord, have mercy on us. And, you know, this story has so much to teach us about so many different things. It can teach us about faith because Jesus said, go. And as they went, they were healed. And we can learn a whole lot about faith that when God says something to you, just start moving in that direction. And then you begin to see what he's talking about. It has a lot to teach us about true acceptance that nine of them went, but it was a Samaritan who came back because even if he's cleansed at the temple, he's still a Samaritan. He's still an outcast. And so he needs more than just being received back into society. He wants to be received by Jesus himself. And so he wants true acceptance. Mm -hmm. But there's also something about gratitude here that, that when God does something in your life, make sure you say thank you. But Jesus is astonished. Why do the other nine not return? I mean, God does things in our life all the time. And why do we not come back? Why do we not say thank you for what he has done? And I think that's where we learn something about mercy here, that oftentimes mercy can be a painful proposition. How did these men know they were healed? I'm, I'm told that if you have leprosy, the feeling begins to go away in your body. And so as they're walking away, how do they know they're healed? Could it be that the pain is now returning to their bodies? That toe they stubbed the day before and they didn't feel hmm. is now starting to hurt. Maybe they burnt their hand in the fire as they were cooking the night before, and now they're starting to feel the pain of that. And so when they say, have mercy on me, what they were asking for is healing. Oh. But their healing was painful because now that they're healed, they're now starting to feel the things that they were numb to before. That's cool. I have never thought of that That's before, really that with, with the restoration of their health, they would now be able to feel pain. And they would. If not then, later, right? Right. I mean, right. it's... So mercy involves pain. Yeah, welcome to the world Whoa. of pain. Yeah. Mercy can be a painful proposition. Mm -hmm. and, and what you're saying is health itself is a painful proposition. Well, I think about that even, even in relationships. You know, you, you beg God to heal your marriage or you long for God to heal a relationship with your child or extended family or a co-worker situation. You know, as long as you're wounded, you pull back, you can sit in your cubicle and, you know, ruminate on your own owies and, you know, resentments. Insulated. Insulated. Yeah. yeah and, and become numb to them yeah. as a leper might. But when you're healed, you're invited back into relationship where new wounds can be experienced and new healings need to be applied that are not comfortable. This is a very good parallel. Or I think of the single person who longs to be married and says, God have mercy on me. And God provides them with that spouse. And now they have the love of their life, but now they are also giving themselves to embracing one of the greatest pains someday when they will lose that spouse to death. One and psychotherapist suggested that uh, the beginning of grief is to fall in love. Yeah. That's true. We don't grieve things that we didn't love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't see that ahead of time, do we? No. And mercy comes with love, doesn't it? Health comes with love. Mm -hmm. And love exposes us to, to one another's brokenness. Mm -hmm. And to our own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So C.S. Lewis had a great phrase for this. He called it a severe mercy. That sometimes when God's mercy shows up in your life, it can be painful. And that will cause us to then not draw near to him, thinking something went wrong. But it was this one leper who, in spite of the pain that was now showing up in his life, still recognized it as an answer to the prayer, Lord, have mercy on us, and went back and realized that this was God working, that the pain was the mercy. So are you suggesting that the other nine didn't return because they didn't want to see the pain? 
experience the pain. They were experiencing the they pain. They were experiencing the pain. And they asked for mercy, but they didn't know that the mercy would be painful. I'm wondering, too, once, if you're, you're suggesting they were Jewish, right? They were probably yes. Jewish lepers. For them to come back and thank Jesus may have subjected them to uh, the opinions of their neighbors and religious leaders who were not as anxious as they were to acknowledge what Jesus was doing and who he was. And especially since he's on the border between Samaria and Galilee, they're going to have to come closer to him, but then also closer to the ones they don't like. They got to come to the border. And, and so there was a whole lot of, number other of factors right, there. going on. Yeah. Jesus gives him strong words about them where he says in verse 17, we're not all 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Why is he differentiating out the Samaritan? I mean, what is he trying to say by those words? I think he's experiencing pain just like the rest of them. But he's also experiencing another pain that even if he is received back and the priest says he is now cleansed, he still has to live with the pain of being an outcast in society. So his double pain, if you will, perhaps becomes his motivation to go to Jesus. And he's actually accessing further mercy by going back, by responding to the pain rather than ignoring it. Yeah, or we just normally look at suffering as something outside the will of God. Mm. But sometimes suffering can be inside the will of God, that we see Jesus on the cross fully in God's will and suffering. And that was mercy. And that sometimes our pain is mercy in disguise. And this leper who goes back, this, this Samaritan, I mean, he goes back in pain. He, he discovers pain as he's healed. He feels that he experiences. He's asked for mercy. He gets pain. And he also gets healing. But he goes back for a double dose. And all he is doing is, is thanking Jesus. He throws himself at Jesus' feet and thanks him. And he gets a double dose of mercy in a way. Yeah, because yeah. Jesus at the last verse here, verse 19 says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. The other nine didn't get that. So while there's suffering in mercy, there's pain, there's suffering in God in our relationship with him. You know, when we go into it rather than away from it, there's more mercy available. It's a beautiful thing that our pain can lead us further into God and into more of the mercy he longs to give us because of this relationship, this ongoing gifting of mercy that it is. So I think of that verse where Paul says, give thanks in all things. Maybe we just practice giving thanks in all things, even the pain, because that pain may actually be God's mercy showing up. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to miss out on a chance of coming back and being grateful for what he's doing. Yeah, that is such an important point. And I think something Robert wrote in his book on the mercy prayer helps us more clearly understand that times of pain and suffering can actually be God's mercy in disguise. Let me read that for you. He writes, the sting of alcohol on a wound or the painful prick of a nurse's needle are good in light of their context and yet no less painful. And so sometimes when we ask for mercy and pain arrives, it may be God's healing hand at work. Yeah, an important perspective for us to keep in mind for sure. And speaking of Robert's book, I want to encourage you to consider getting a copy of Robert Gelinas' book on this subject. It is also called The Mercy Prayer. Drawing on familiar stories and biblical insight, much like he's doing in our conversations, uh, in the book, Robert invites us to wade into God's mercy and see how deep we can get. I think it's a book that'll spark a new appreciation for God's mercy in you and a passion to see others experience it too. 
If you've been captured by the study we've been doing, you'll want to get a copy of The Mercy Prayer, The One Prayer Jesus Always Answers. Just type Robert Gelinas, that's spelled G-E-L-I-N-A-S, Robert Gelinas, into your search engine along with The Mercy Prayer, and you'll be able to purchase a copy. Highly recommended. The Mercy Prayer by Robert Gelinas. Well, the term Kiri Eleison. Have you ever heard that before? Well, Kiri Eleison is Greek for Lord have mercy. It's a phrase that's been around in church tradition for a long time. And in this next segment, Robert wants to take us to two places in the Gospels where that request is made of Jesus, Kiri Eleison, Lord have mercy. And then he wants us to take note of two questions that Jesus asks in response. We may find that these questions will shape our perspective when we pray for mercy. All right, so let's jump right into this next part of the study as uh, Elisa begins with this story. I was um, preparing to go fishing with my husband and my brother a few weeks ago, and we were trying to decide who would go in which boat. You know, would I go with my husband? Would I go with my brother? That kind of a conversation. And my husband looked up at my brother and he said, would you like to float alone? And it's interesting because looking back, I knew exactly what my husband was saying, but my brother, who was starting a new business, heard my husband saying, would you like to float a loan? <laughs> As in loan some money. As in loan some money. And he got so excited. He was like, yes, I'd love to float alone. <laughs> and my husband's backtracking going, oh, no, I meant go alone in the boat, float alone. <gasps> oh, you know, it just, it's, it makes me howl thinking about it. And, uh, you know, plays on all, words. All languages yeah. have these plays on, on words. Yeah. And yeah, the same thing happening with Kyrie eleison in the Greek. That's Lord have mercy. Kyrie. Say that again. What are the words? Kyrie eleison. Okay. Lord have mercy. If we were walking with Jesus, we would have heard people say that sentence to Jesus many times. Kyrie eleison. Hmm. But the original hearers would have heard a play on words. Kyrie eleison sounded like Kyrie eleon. And eleon was the word for oil or medicine. Hmm. And so the word for mercy also sounded like the word for medicine. And so when people came to Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on me, it sounded like they were saying, Lord, have medicine on me. Fascinating. Uh, because God's mercy is about healing as well. So are you seeing it as being something ironic or intentional or how does that play out? I think it was a fun play on words, but I think the blind men, especially, mm. you have two separate occasions where two separate sets of blind men come to Jesus and say, Kyrie eleison. But they knew about the different medical offerings of the day they probably tried to cure their blindness with the different oil concoctions and nothing was working. So when they said Kyrie eleison, they probably heard the play on words because they had ears attuned since their eyes weren't. Yeah. But when these blind men on two separate occasions came to Jesus and said, Kyrie eleison, have mercy or medicine on me, he had some questions for them. We see the first pair of blind men in Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 31. Why don't you read that? When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. I absolutely love that story. We've talked about this a little bit before that almost having to chase Jesus because they're saying have mercy, but he goes indoors. He keeps on moving. But when they get to him, he has a question for them. Do you believe I'm able to do this? And remarks about faith, that something about asking for mercy requires faith. I hear you saying that's not just true for them then. 
Now it's true for us as well. And as we talked about, I think it was last week, that if we've got dominoes falling in our life, what we're believing is that somewhere in the future, God's going to step in and remove one of those dominoes. So the consequences or the reality of our life becomes different. And it requires faith. I remember that conversation. I do too. And I'm, I'm flashing back to it right now because I know we talked about, well, when we know God and we have a relationship with him, don't we already have mercy? You know, is it a kind of a done deal? And Robert's pushing us and presenting scriptures to us has, has made me come to a place where I realize there is more of God I can have if I believe he wants to give me more. Even though the work on the cross was done once for all of us, our understanding of it and our transformation by its power is gradual. And the question I think is, and how much more is there? Because what we're talking about in one of those other conversations too is in crying for mercy, we're asking him to lessen the consequences of our own suffering, of our own sin. And we were talking the other day, can we hope that he will remove all the consequences of the difficult things of our lives? And, and I think you were saying, not necessarily, but in calling for mercy, we're asking for him to lessen the consequences in some way. And as hard as it is to believe, Jesus's question is, but do you believe? Do that you I can believe do I'm able to do this? To because lessen they, the consequences of, sin and of suffering. suffering of sin. Right. One of the ways that God's brought it home in my life is our family's been through, a, I think, a, a long series of sufferings. My husband and I, in raising our children, whom we adore, and they adore us, but there have been a lot of bumps, and some of their choices have had devastating, disastrous consequences. And in the early years, this has been going on about 15 years, I would beg God to intervene. But over time, when he didn't intervene the way I thought he maybe would, I stopped asking. Hmm. It was like I was afraid the other shoe would fall, It's like, oh, you know, it's not that God necessarily would be out to get me, but I just began to be conditioned that maybe he didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And and I've been challenged by this concept to believe that he does want to intervene on my behalf. It may not always look the way I want it to, but he does want to. And can I just ask a question then? In light of what Robert is saying about appealing to God to lessen the consequences of our sin and suffering. Over those 15 years, as you look back, you're acknowledging there were consequences. They were very painful. Exactly. But can you see now in any sense in which God did answer by lessening? Was there anything there that made you sense that something could have been worse? I I can look back and see that it could have been worse. I'm just standing before him knowing that I didn't trust him or believe him for as much as he probably wanted me to. I'm not saying that my believing differently would change how he interacted necessarily. I just know I pulled back. I was afraid. And I think there's nothing to be afraid of in mercy that way. I think I gave in to fear. Yeah, Robert, what are you hearing in that? That we all have those moments where we say, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think Jesus asking the question is just saying, let's just start over again. You're Mm. asking me for mercy. I just want to know, do you believe I can do this? And it resets the relationship. Do you believe who I say I am? And so that's what he does with these blind men. And then he heals them. And then he says, don't tell anybody. And what do they do? They go tell everybody. And it says news about him spread all over the region. And so here you have these first two blind men healed by Jesus. Weeks, days pass. We don't know how much passes. And many miles away, two other blind men here. And when Jesus comes to their town, they start shouting for the same thing, for God to have mercy. It's found in Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. Why don't you read that, Elisa? As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. 
two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Notice the different question. To the first two blind men, he said, do you believe I'm able to do this? This time, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Which strikes me as odd. They're blind. And so it seems obvious that they would want to be healed of their blindness. But he says, what do you want me to do? And he's open to options on that one. He's open for us expressing our need to him. But I have a friend who says, you must want what your wants lead to. Mm. If you want God to do something in your life, then you also want a different set of dominoes to Mm. start falling in your life. And for them to say, I want to see, means they no longer want to be beggars. To no longer want to be beggars means they want to go out and get a job. To go out and get a job means that they want a different path in their life. And so if they want one thing, they must also want what their wants lead to. Uh, so and you're so, seeing a loaded question then. Yeah. yeah right? It's, yeah. Do you really want to see? Yeah. And I also see that that's maybe what Jesus is asking us when we make this the most prayed prayer in our life. Is he then turning around and saying, do you believe? Which means it has to enlarge our view of mercy, but then also... What do we really want? Do we want him to be merciful? And what would that look like? Do we really want all that comes along with his mercy? Makes us stop and think, I even go back to my illustration of uh, our family's struggle. The first question, do I believe? And, and I realize I kind of became conditioned to think, not so much. You I mean, I believe God loves me, but I don't really believe he wants to intervene. So I have to look at my faith, help my unbelief, as you suggest. But then I also look at what do I really want? Where will my wants take me? And, you know, sometimes God invites us to consider that in this longer path of Lord, have mercy, because he longs for our eventual growth, not just our immediate good. That mercy is a a deeper application to our lives than what we first see on the surface. Takes us to new steps of faith, too, where we realize, okay, there's going to have to be more than one act of God's help here. You know, it's going to make changes. I'm going to need help going forward. That's right. You know, and sometimes we have a strange relationship with our pain. I remember when I was a kid one time, I hurt my finger and I didn't like that. But then I had this splint on my finger and I really liked all of the attention I got. Because people thought I was in pain, they gave me extra attention. And if Jesus were to remove or lessen the pain in our life, do we also want less attention from others because we no longer have that? And so they're difficult questions. Do we really believe? And what do we want him to do? The beauty of it is that both of those questions answered led to these four men the very first face they saw was Jesus. And that seemed to be worth it all. The face of mercy. Yeah. And so how would you answer those questions from Jesus if he asked them of you? Do you believe, believe that I can, and then what do you want me to do for you? In answering those piercing questions, we find that faith and mercy really do go hand in hand. Some key insights that help us more fully understand our need for God's mercy and what can happen when we continually ask for it, not just for ourselves, but for everyone around us, too. Well, up to this point, we've been talking a lot about how willing and ready God is to dispense mercy. But in this next segment of the conversation, they're going to explore what at first may sound like a troubling aspect of God's mercy, because this part of the conversation is called Strings Attached. 
And as we join the group back at the table, I can see that something is kind of bothering Elisa. Uh, Mart sees that in her face as well, and he thinks he knows what's going on. You saw Robert's note. <laughs> I know, those hotel. I can <laughs> see. I can read upside down because he's across Robert's the table. You saw Robert's notes where he talked about strings attached. He did. Right? Isn't that what's bothering yes, you? Yes. He had titled, God's Mercy Comes with Strings Attached. And now I'm getting mad because I just started wanting to have more of this mercy. Lord have mercy. And I'm wondering. God's mercy does seem to come with strings attached. Jesus said, oh. blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Or then the Lord's Prayer, which I find absolutely terrifying, where we say, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And that seems to make forgiveness and mercy contingent, you know, that we're saying to God, what you see me doing to others, do that in my life as well. So you're saying you don't like the implication that we have to somehow fulfill obligations? I don't like it, but it sure seems to be there. And there's that one story that Jesus told about the parable of the unmerciful servant. He didn't like it either. And I think it's found in Matthew 18. And we the can servant read, didn't yeah, like the it either. Let, we let's can read that. Go yeah. there. And I think this one starts in verse 23. So Matthew 18, 23, Mark, you and I want to split this up. Okay. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. Wow, my version says began to choke him. Okay, then in verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had it on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And it's interesting that Jesus told that on the heels of Peter saying, how many times should I forgive someone? And seven times, and Jesus said 70 times seven. And all of that is in the context of forgiveness. And then Jesus tells this story about a man who's forgiven much, but then doesn't forgive much. So the question I'm wondering about is, are we talking about conditions at the front end or conditions on the other end? Strings attached to mercy? Yeah, I mean, mean, is it certain obligations to fulfill to receive mercy? Or is it that once I've received mercy... I now have obligations to fulfill. What are you talking about, Robert? I don't know. But what I do think is if we're going to ask for mercy, we should simultaneously be prepared to offer it. Asking God for mercy is also a commitment to being a merciful person. How it works out, I don't know. But what I do know is that God is expecting us to be for others what he has been for us. It's reminding me of an earlier program we had on Lord Have Mercy and how we talked about how the, the mercy prayer we think is for us, but in changing us, 
it changes how we pray for our world and those in it with us. And this constant um, revelation that the Bible gives us that we're not in this journey alone. We are a part of, of a bigger story, a story where, where we're transformed and therefore we become instruments of transformation. I don't get exactly how that works, but that's what's bubbling yeah, no, that, up inside me. But that me. makes sense, and it does seem to be parallel. What I'm wondering is whether or not if the mercy is real in us, is it kind of an organic thing where the life just kind of flows naturally? Mm-hmm. Is Does it, it something, do its work? Is mm-hmm. it something that we really have to think, oh, okay, now I've received this. I ought, I should, I must, you know, show it to somebody else. I think some of it has to do with rights. The king in this story had the right to demand the debt be paid and gave up the right. Then the servant goes out. He has the right to then collect on a debt. But just because our father gives up the right does that mean he's asking us to give up our rights? And mercy seems to be saying, I'm going to let go of things that I have a right to in this world just because that's what God has done as well. You know, there's a part of me that wants to give this second servant the benefit of the doubt. I don't want to believe that he consciously knew that what had been given to him, he was now consciously refusing to give to someone else. Because you know, our human nature can kind of blind us. Can I? I mean, we can move forward without really thinking about what we're doing. Well, it's so like when we've received something, we don't realize it until it's asked of us. You know, you look in the mirror and you see you have lettuce in your teeth. But if you never look in the mirror, you don't know. I mean, did he really know he was being that bad? What do you think, Robert? I think this motivates me, knowing that God, when he gives me mercy, expects me to be merciful. It motivates me then to want to know mercy more and to make sure that I truly understand what it is. And so there's that time when the Pharisees were judging Jesus and his disciples, and he says, go learn what this means. Uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in that, he was giving them a homework assignment. He says, I want you to go learn about mercy, become a student of mercy. So we learn to pay attention more clearly to when we receive mercy. And it reminds me of the the broadcast with the, the leper who went back and thanked Jesus. I recognize that I've gotten mercy and I understand I received it from God and it's from him and it helps me know him differently. And that work is not done just because it was a, a transaction, an exchange. It's more about a transformation where I'm different because I remember that I've received mercy and now I want to be different. Yeah. And And if we're not remembering that, I think what Robert is saying too makes sense that maybe a lot of this just has to do with being at a place we just haven't figured it out yet. We don't have a clue. We're blind even to the implications of what's been given to us. And so what the Lord was saying to the Pharisees, it sounds like you've got work to do. Yeah. Make sure you figure this one out and go study. And, you know, he told the Pharisees, go learn what this means. And they didn't. A few chapters later in Matthew, they come back and they're still judgmental and unmerciful. And so he says to him again, I wish you would have learned what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What does that look like in in real life to have done our homework in such a way that we remember or we apply? I remember back to my school days, I didn't like doing homework. And so thinking of doing my homework when it comes to mercy sounds like a duty. Mm -hmm. And what helps me is thinking back to when my wife, I remember the first love letter she ever wrote me. It was like seven pages long. And when she handed that to me, I read it through one time quickly. And then I read it through again slowly. And I read it over and over. And what I was doing in that moment, I was studying that letter, but it didn't feel like a chore. Hmm. And it's because the one who gave it to me, I loved, and I wanted to know what she thought about me. And so I think the same is true when it comes to mercy, that what does Micah say? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That maybe it's if we love mercy, then the study becomes a delight. That love is what makes the difference. I'm trying to imagine loving mercy. We probably have to stop and get quiet enough to think about it, don't we? 
I'm sitting here thinking, do I have any idea of how much mercy I've received? I don't think so. I don't think I have a clue. But from our conversations together, what I'm getting a sense of is I think to the extent that I might become more aware of what I've been given, sheerly on the basis of God's mercy, I'll bet that's the kind of transformation you're talking about. Yeah, it's not just appreciating mercy or respecting that God is merciful, but taking it one step further and saying, I love what happens when God lessens penalties. I love what happens when God lessens suffering. And I love it in my life, and I love it so much, I want to see others experience the same thing and the same results in their life as well. I'm having an image in in my head, just as we're talking, trying to imagine what this really feels like to love mercy. And I'm, I'm picturing myself in a swimming pool, and I have no idea really how much water has been put into this hole And that water is holding me. But if I imagine the water draining out and I fall to the concrete with nothing around me supporting it, that would be the lack of mercy. So is that maybe an illustration that that God's mercy supports us, it holds us, it cushions us, it protects us, it delivers us, it gives us a place to be. Without it, we would truly experience a different life. With it, it's almost imperceptible, but we need to remember what it is doing for us. Yeah, what it's doing for us and the fact that this swimming pool isn't just for us. It isn't just for us. In fact, there's all kinds of people, and one pastor we had years ago used to talk about, these are concepts that float everybody's boat. You know, they a rising tide, we know that, you know, raises all ships. But it's that same kind of a concept that what holds me will hold all in terms of God's mercy. What if I can take your swimming analogy even further? If you love being in the pool and enjoy it, you want others to enjoy it as well. My wife loves swimming, and therefore she has made sure that each one of our children have gone through swimming classes and can also enjoy the water and swim in it. And maybe that's the same when it comes to the mercy of God, is when we have received it, then we want to then turn around and teach others to enjoy it as well, that we look for every opportunity to teach someone else to pray the mercy prayer with every beat of their heart and let them experience it also. So when your child is coming into your room at night because afraid of a nightmare or something, that's a moment where you can say, let me pray and teach you how to pray right now so that you can experience God lessening your fear and teaching others how to pray for mercy as well. Hmm, What a great suggestion that is. God's mercy is too great a gift to be kept to ourselves. It's designed to be shared. That's the strings-attached nature of the mercy prayer. And that's what I hope you'll take away from that part of the conversation, that just as we have received God's mercy, you and I are to offer mercy to those around us. How did Robert say it? Along with the request for mercy comes the commitment to be a merciful person. And so is there someone in your life who has hurt or offended you. I know it's difficult to let go of those resentments, but as Robert also said, God expects us to be for others what he's been for us. Well, I think I mentioned in part one of this study that Robert is a longtime listener of Discover the Word, going all the way back to the days when Haddon Robinson and Alice Matthews were part of the group. I love that we have that connection. And we also heard recently from another longtime member of our Discover the Word family, that said that the many conversations she and her husband have been part of over the years have brought, quote, light into their world through your studies, your insightfulness, uh, the banter shared, and your friendship, unquote. And that is so encouraging to hear. And did you know that your financial support 
has a part in people being transformed by the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible. And so let me encourage you to consider partnering with us financially by visiting our website at discovertheword.org. Go there and click the Donate button. And now here's the conclusion of these conversations about making the Bible's most prayed prayer, the mercy prayer, our most prayed prayer. Leo Tolstoy told this wonderful little story about three hermits who lived together on an isolated island. And every day they would pray, we are three, you are three, have mercy on us. Amen. And one day the local bishop heard about these three hermits out there living by themselves and how they prayed. And he decided he wanted to go teach them more and give them more in-depth training. And so he made a trip out there by ship and got off the boat and began to teach them more about how to have a true relationship with God and how to draw close to God. And they tried to listen as best they could. And then finally, the bishop decided he was going to leave. He got in his boat and he left. And then he looked off in a distance and running across the water, Tolstoy says, were these three hermits. And they ran up across the water and beside the boat and got in and said, we forgot everything you taught us. And he said, well, then never mind. You just go back to praying your version of the mercy prayer. We are three. You are three. Have mercy on us. (laughs) And when I hear that story, I love the mercy prayer. But then I say, is it really that simple? Or do we make prayer too complex? Mm Mm-hmm. I think we do. I really think we do. I I, I think I make how I pray, when I pray, why I pray, what happens when I pray, incredibly complex. And I think that's one of the breakthroughs on this whole theme that we've been doing together, Robert, on the mercy prayer, the prayer that Jesus always answers. I think that's the breakthrough for me is that as simple as it can be is, Lord, have mercy. That gets God's ears every time. But you're not saying limit our words to just those, Lord, have mercy. No, but I'm saying they count and they're they good. They count. Yeah. What I'm kind of wondering is if regardless of what we say, whether the beating heart of what we say shouldn't be, Lord, have mercy. I mean, even if we don't say it in those words, that has to be the spirit that brings us to God. Yeah. And so many of us struggle with prayer. And you ask, you know, the average Christian, how's your prayer life? And they immediately start thinking, well, I prayed five minutes yesterday and 10 minutes today and 15, and we immediately start measuring our relationship with God in minutes. How many minutes did I spend with him? And for me, the mercy prayer opened my eyes to maybe how we pray without ceasing, that if the goal is a life of unceasing prayer, then maybe the beginning of that is to pray with my heartbeat or to pray with my breath. And maybe I move beyond that and I stop limiting myself to, did I pray 15 minutes a day, but did I ever stop praying Mm, really is the question. Not did I start, but did I ever stop? Standing in a place where we understand our need for mercy. Right. We've talked about several different things over the course of the last few days. But just to kind of net it out, when we pray that then, Lord, have mercy. And when we value the simplicity of that, what are we really saying? I mean, what's coming through those simple words? I think we're saying, God, be to us who you say you want to be. You have revealed yourself as being compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. And so we're going to trust you and we're going to ask you for exactly what you said you want to be. Something wild happens when we invite God to be God in our lives. One thing that's hitting me as you're talking, I remember when I first learned to pray and I was a teenager, I listened very carefully to everyone else and how they prayed. You might remember these days it was, and Father, I just really, and just Father, I just, remember all the jests? Okay, (laughs) I'm not quite sure they were there, but it was like part of a prayer language. You had to include the jests. You know, God, I just really, Father, I just really. But another phrase that seem to be essential to every prayer is the phrase, in Jesus' name, Mm -hmm. in your name, before you said the words, amen. 
And we can talk about that for a few minutes here. But what's striking me is, Lord have mercy, is in Jesus' name, potentially, in our prayer lives. And that's a paradigm shift for me. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that it is definitely a prayer that we know is in Jesus' name, that it, to ask God for something in His name has to be more than just ending our prayer in Jesus' name. Because if that's what we're supposed to do, then the Lord's Prayer fails. The Lord's Prayer doesn't end in Jesus' name, but it is a prayer in the name of Jesus. Because what we mean is, this is something that Jesus would sign His name to, that what we're saying is something we know He wants. And that's true of a lot of things. So, you know, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. That's a prayer in Jesus' name. Lord, have mercy. That's a prayer in Jesus' name. It is simply saying, this is what you want to be, and so I'm going to ask you for it. So say that another way. You're saying that instead of just using and ending our prayers with, in Jesus' name, we pray, amen, that there's a bigger idea behind that. Yes, and, and I, I do end most of my prayers in Jesus' name. But the thought behind it, the spirit behind it, is we're asking Jesus for something that he has already said he wants to give, that we know him and therefore are saying, give us something that you would put your name to. And you're saying when it comes to knowing what he would put his name to, Lord, give us mercy. It has to be at the top of any list of things that Jesus wants to provide. And that's because he longs to have us in relationship reconciled to him. But mercy, the very nature of it, as you've defined over the last few days, is lessening the consequences of our sin in our lives. And Jesus longs to do that. And maybe help me walk me again into why does he long to do that? The greatest consequence of sin is life away from God. Mm -hmm. And Jesus just showing up and dying on the cross so that we could have life with him is the lessening of the greatest consequence of all life away from him. But it's not the end of his mercy. It's the beginning. He wants to lessen more than the other consequences in life as well. So, you know, we're talking about how our prayer lives are changed by learning to pray differently. We hear in Scripture, Father teaches to pray, and then we hear the Lord's Prayer. But in a way, we're asking God the same thing, Father teach us to pray. And Robert, you're suggesting he would say, pray, Lord have mercy. Who wouldn't want to have a prayer life revolutionized by this kind of concept? It gives us confidence. That's what the writer of Hebrews talked about, that knowing that God wants to give us mercy means that we can go confidently into the throne room of God and receive mercy. It creates a boldness to our prayers. Mm -hmm. Robert, you've been working on this book for, what, a couple of years? Yeah. So this whole thought of coming to God for mercy is something you've been thinking about for a long time, and you believe that it's transformational. Can you just talk a little bit about what's happened to you over the last couple of years in relation to the difference it's made in you, the way you've seen it possibly surprise you in relationships? Yeah, the biggest surprise is what it did to me inside. There was a movement that went from seeing the most prayed prayer in the Bible to seeing that many throughout the centuries have made this their most prayed prayer. But when I actually made it my most prayed prayer, the way I tell my story changed. There are elements of all of our stories and elements of my story that is tragic or comical or what have you. But it's only when you ask God for mercy that your story becomes more than a tragedy, more than a comedy. It becomes gospel and truly good news. So you have seen it make a difference in yourself. Oh my goodness, yeah. But it can be transformed into what we see in the Bible, that it's an encounter with Jesus. It's a gospel. It's making me think of the transformation in my life. And boy, I'm far from done. I mean, I'm such a work in progress. But um, 
as I've been journeying my own journey of, of brokenness and then beginning to see God's beauty in my brokenness and the, the circumstances in my life. But, but take this to all of us. You know, there's the mess that God turns into a message, <laughs> the brokenness that God turns into beauty. And these, this process, it really, honestly, when we draw near to God, we see our need for His mercy, that He lessens the consequences of our sins, that He invites us to be changed through that merciful relationship. Well, we become a gospel story. It's not just the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. It's actually the gospel according to Robert, and the gospel according to Mart, and the gospel according to Elisa, because I can say, here's who I was, and then there's Jesus, and by His mercy, here's who I'm becoming. So I live this story differently, and I become a transformed person, and I share the story of transformation with others that they too might know this, all because of God having mercy on my mess. And is it what you actually say or what other people read in you? Mm, I love that. You know, as St. Francis of Assisi, I believe, said, preach Christ at all times if necessary, use words. You know, it's probably both and. I mean, we are blah, 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 using words 15 minutes a day, every day of the week, and no one can really see our lives. But I pray that through our examples and through our life stories, they see Jesus, they see the gospel, they are able to live their lives in view of God's mercy and see the transformation. And that's what gospel is. It's what happens when you encounter Jesus and he transforms you. And so you see the 10 lepers, they encountered Jesus. They were transformed. They became good news. The Mm -hmm. blind men Mm -hmm. encountered Jesus, received mercy, and they became good news. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Robert, I think there is at the very beginning, front of your book, this thought that when I read it, I thought, oh, good night. And now as we've talked, we've had these conversations over the last few days. It seems like that one thought, that one prayer sort of captures everything that you've been talking about. Do you remember what you wrote there? That the mercy prayer is for those who sin and those who suffer, for those who suffer because of sin, and for those who sin to alleviate their suffering. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us all. Amen. The mercy prayer. Uh, this is Discover the Word. And you're around the table with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, and our friend Robert Gelinas. And with that, we conclude our time with pastor and author Robert Gelinas and wrap up our discussion about the mercy prayer. Our thanks to Robert for taking time to share with us what he's learned about this subject and how it's made such a difference in his life and perspective. And, you know, I think this is one of the more powerful and memorable studies that we've done together. And so I would suggest that this might be a study you would want a friend to listen to as well. Our website would be a good place to send them. They can stream or download the audio at no charge at discovertheword.org. Well, I will let you know where we'll be going in our next Bible study on the Discover the Word podcast. But first, real quickly, uh, don't forget to check into getting a copy of Robert's book called The Mercy Prayer. I think it'd be a great follow-up to our conversations about making the Bible's most prayed prayer, our most prayed prayer. Do a search for The Mercy Prayer by Robert Gelinas, spelled G-E-L-I-N-A-S. The Mercy Prayer by Robert Gelinas, and explore how to get a copy of that book. All right, well, next time on the Discover the Word podcast, Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Rasul Berry, and Daniel Ryan Day will be around the table to begin a new three-part series together. And so when you think about a group of 12 men from the Bible, who do you think of? Well, the disciples, right? Yeah, I think that's where we all go first. 
Well, actually, we're going to look at another group of 12 that came centuries before. And you may be surprised to hear that we'll be talking about the Minor Prophets and going through a summary of their writings one by one. And you may be even more surprised to hear that their words are still relevant today. Did you know that the Minor Prophets are often called the Twelve? We'll be part of the conversation as we start our new series, The Twelve Minor Prophets, next time on the Discover the Word podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedding. The Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.